The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, we are going to be diving into Luke chapter 14 this morning. And while you are looking there on your app or turning there in your Bible, just a couple of things I want to remind you of tonight. We've got a worship night night of prayer, a night of hearing testimonies, of singing to the Lord together. At about 6.30 out in the lobby, there'll be some uh, time together out there and then come in here and, and really kind of three parts where we hear about our core values of surrender, community, and mission. And then not next Saturday, but the following, January 20th, we've got a newcomer's brunch at 10 a.m. And so if you're new enough here that you've not yet been to a newcomer's brunch, that is for you. It's a great time to hear from our staff and elders a bit more about our core values, about the DNA of TBC. And over the next three weeks, we'll be looking at surrender and community and mission before diving into a series with two parts on the book of Exodus that will take us through a lot of this year. Well, why surrender and why community and why missions? Why do we want to talk about these things I think it's important to know the context of this. And so about 52, 53 years ago now almost, in 1971, a group of people in Central Texas sensed the Lord leading them to plant a non-denominational Bible church. They would teach the Scripture and they would be under the authority of Jesus Christ and come under the authority of the Word of God. And as they did faithfully learn the Scripture together, they became a church that was also very much about missions locally and globally. And, and so in founding documents, these people wrote this down, Temple Bible Church exists to glorify God by obeying the Great Commission. They did not come up with that themselves. That's this kind of a long and very old idea that comes from Matthew chapter 28 and other scriptures because they expounded on that for us, for this local church. They said they wanted to do that by introducing people to the person of Jesus Christ and then establishing them in a personal walk with Christ and then equipping them to do the work of ministry. And somewhere along the way, that one I and two E's turned into four E's and we began to talk about evangelizing the lost and establishing the young and equipping the growing and extending the mature. But then we wanted to clarify even more because no matter how old you are in Christ, you can still be established. You can still be more deeply rooted in Him. And we never stop needing to be equipped. And, and we can be extended to our neighborhood and we can be extended to the nations. And so to, to clarify even more the way and manner, we began in about 2009 and 2010 talking about these things that we really, really value. Our core values, you get the core. It's the core of who we are. And so we value surrender and community and mission. These are things that we just want pulsing through the veins of those who've been here for a while. As I began to, to think about talking to you all about surrender, this, this phrase kept coming to my mind from, uh, from a message on the parables that we did in the late summer, early fall last year, I think relates to surrender. And, and the statement was this, the kingdom of heaven is more valuable than you can imagine and more important than you can understand. 
And the, I think the reason that I thought about that is because that's this really positive idea that comes from the parable of the treasure hidden in the field, where Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, in his joy, he hid it again. He sold all he had to buy that field. It's this positive idea of I'll surrender everything for the kingdom. Well, sometimes, you know, as, as parents, sometimes you motivate positively and sometimes you motivate with warning. And I, I think Luke 14 is still really positive, but it's just a warning about surrender, about two sorts of cost involved with surrender. And there's nothing new under the sun as we talk about Luke 14, as, as we study the disciplines in the fall and reading the Word, being in community together, praying, serving. All these things really flow out of hearts that are together surrendered to Jesus Christ. See, when you trust Jesus Christ, there are a couple of things that you'll find. Number one, he has called us to salvation. He's given us eternal life. But then he also, as the church, gives us a vocation. He gives us something to do. When we receive the good news, we're called the life and we're called to joyfully surrender to Jesus all of our days. And we have a vocation to carry out. Our vocation is not what we do. Whatever your job title is, that's not your vocation. Whatever your job title is, that's one of the places you go to carry out your vocation if you're in Christ, to carry out surrender to Jesus and living as part of his community and being on mission. So we're going to look at what Jesus says about surrender to him and the cost of following him and the cost of not following him. So let's read Luke 14, 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to war to encounter another king will not sit down first and deliberate whether, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way away, he'll send out a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Well, Father, we pray that we would see the beauty and glory and majesty and love of Jesus Christ. That you give us eyes to see it in such a way that we would renounce all we are and all we have and all that we hope to be in glad surrender to him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Jesus is, is teaching and his fame is growing and it says this great crowd accompanied him. There's a crowd of interested people. 
You might be interested. It might be a new year and you're going, I want to check this out, see what this is like. There's a crowd of interested people. And what Jesus does is he looks at the interested and invites them to invest everything. All they are, all they have, all they hope to be. That's the invite Jesus gives. Give all that you are for all that I am. That's why Jesus came and lived and died and rose from the dead. That we might give all that we are for all that he is. And see, what we find is the cost is everything, but so is the cost of not following him. And so we're gonna talk today about how surrender involves a new understanding of relationships, a new understanding of vocation, and a new understanding of cost. So Jesus then says to these people this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Listen, some, some of you, you see that verse and go, have you met my family? Where do I sign up? <laughs> but, but does Jesus actually want us to hate all these people? Or is there something he's saying using hyperbole that we need to understand, is this guy who spent his ministry saying, love your enemies and love your neighbors and love one another. And his disciples tell us that we're to love our spouse as he loved the church. To honor our parents, to raise our children in a caring way. The guy who laid his life down for his enemies and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Does he really want us to hate even our own lives? I think no, it's that everything else wanes in comparison and is shaped by our love for him. It's that we're thinking about him and his ways more than we're thinking about us. We think a lot about what we don't have and what we do have and what we want and cannot get. We think about what our goals are for the year. We might think about how our team lost in the last seconds of the semifinal. I don't know. There's all kinds of things that are lesser things that compete for our attention. And Jesus tells us, no, you're going to have to hate everything else in comparison to me because it, it rails against our fallen natures. It, it rails against a culture that calls us to look out only for ourselves. It rails against the dominant threads of the therapeutic in our day. I appreciate this, this guy named Ryan Anderson. Here's what he says about modern culture. And this call of Christ is just so different. He says, the modern self finds himself in a culture of expressive individualism that the best thing we can do is express who we are, express ourselves, where each of us seeks to give full expression to our individual inner lives, whatever's going on in all my feels and all my thoughts, I just wanna express that. Rather than seeing ourselves as embedded in communities that are bound by both natural and supernatural laws. He says, authenticity to inner feelings rather than adherence to transcendent truths has become the norm. The modern self then is not accountable to the theologians who preach on how to conform ourselves to God, but to the therapists who counsel how to be true to ourselves. And Jesus says, you have to hate your life if you follow me. You have to hate your life 
if you follow me. See, surrender is not just give up your people, but it's give up your life in stark contrast to the therapeutic of the day. He says, if you want to save your life, lose it. If you want to gain your life, lay it down. He said, our love for everyone and our love for everything wanes in comparison to him and is shaped by our devotion to him, the way we relate to our spouse, the way we relate to our friends, the way we relate to our coworkers and our neighbors, the way we relate to what we fill our eyes and our minds with, the way we relate to our pocketbook wanes in comparison to how we relate to him and is shaped by how we relate to him. Well, how can we know if we're surrendering to him? Because you or I, anybody could just go, yeah, I'm surrendering to Jesus and have a mind or an idea in our mind that is just thoroughly foreign to Scripture. How can we know? I think we can know by knowing Him, by spending time with Him, by getting to know what He loves and letting that impact our loves, by getting to know what He detests and letting that impact the things that we detest. Did Jesus' chief concerns for the world make up your chief concerns for the world? Is your marriage or your singleness surrendered to Jesus in 2024? Not simply, hey, let's go to church a little more. Or how you relate to this person you've committed your life to or to the community that you've committed your life to. How you serve one another and bear with one another and forgive one another is the gospel modeled in front of your kids when you fail. Is your singleness surrendered to Jesus? When Paul talks to the singles in Corinth, he seems to have two things in mind. Are you content in Christ and are you single for the sake of mission? Is how you relate closest to you shaped by the reality that Jesus is Lord. I heard a story of, of a guy one time. It's a fictional story. I'm sure it never happened. But he, he went through the holidays. And at the end of the holidays, someone asked him, does your family know that Jesus is, is Lord? And he said, well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I told him I go to church. No, 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 but does your family know that Jesus is Lord. Well, yeah, I mean, I told them I don't drink, smoke, or cuss. Does your family know that Jesus is Lord? I mean, I told them who I was voting for. Never happened, right? See, when we talk about surrender, we do not mean, yes, they know I named the name of Christ, though that's part of it. We do not mean, yes, they know who I'm voting for. We do not mean, yes, they know I don't drink, smoke, or cuss. What we mean is something like this. I hope that by God's grace that those around me know that I'm imperfectly seeking to walk in the ways of Jesus, that my life belongs to Him, that it's being transformed by Him, that when I laid my sins at the foot of the cross, I also laid down my rights at the foot of the cross. It's, it's important to talk about, I think this year especially, I'm not sure if y'all have heard 2024 is an election year. You guys, y'all are aware of that? And see, I, I, don't, I don't know if you remember, there was the, in 2016, we, we saw something that was just a, I don't know if it was because social media had just had enough time to be social media. We just saw this sort of ugliness toward one another. People name the name of Jesus, just saying things you think they surely never say that to one another's face. And then 2016 was over and we thought, man, that'll never happen again. That was awful, golly. And then another year called 2020 happened. 
And it's just really embarrassing a lot, honestly. People who name the name of Jesus, whether in person or on social media or wherever else, just spitting vitriol, spewing hate at one another. And let me just say in 2024, we're not doing that at TBC. Hear me, hold your political opinions and hold them highly. Vote, believe in what you believe in. Have polite conversations with people. But if we get through this year and everybody knows who we voted for, but they don't know that we're loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself, it doesn't really matter who's in the White House. You go, Chase, you are killing me. Come on. Yes, that's the point. Even his own life. So then he speaks about how our vocation has changed. He says... Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's all that you are for all that he is. See, the the cross is not primarily a piece of jewelry or part of a collage that looks nice on a wall. And I want you to hear me. I think those are fine things as reminders of the sacrifice of Jesus. But the cross is an instrument of Roman torture. It's reserved for the worst of criminals. And Jesus says, daily, this is your vocation. Take it up. Take it up. It's not what you do for a living, but it's following him. If, if people could describe you after, after you, you die, uh, what would they say? He was a carpenter. He was a doctor. He was a dentist. He was a teacher. He was an attorney. There's this just one spot in, in the middle of Acts chapter 18, and it's really all that we know about this guy. There's this guy named Titus Justus. And they're just going along in Acts 18. Paul's doing what he's doing, and it says, there's this guy named Titus Justus who lived next to the synagogue, and he was a worshiper of God. Like, could you just imagine if, if that just uh, love and adoration for Jesus Christ was just flowing out of us so much? Like, what does that guy do? What's that lady do? Oh, oh, that's a worshiper of Jesus. See, that, that is our vocation because we're in Christ. We were dead, and now we're alive. We were blind, and now we see. We were enslaved to our own sins, and now we're free. We were walking in darkness and ignorance and foolishness and wickedness. Oh, God, we never want to go back there. And now, by God's grace, we're walking in the light. We were children of wrath. And we're the people of God, so we die to our dreams and we embrace God's dream for the world. And guess what? That is where the fullest joy is found. When Jesus is saying something very similar to his disciples the night before he dies, he says, greater love has no man than this. And he lays down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. And right there he just says, and I'm writing this, that your joy may be full. Why do you want me to take up a cross, Jesus? So that you might find true and lasting and deep and fullest joy in the midst of a broken world. See, the the gospel is such good news 
even though it could mean, it did mean often in the first century, it does mean for some believers today. It can mean you lose your family. It can mean you lose some friends. It could mean you lose your job. It could mean, and it does for some, that you lose your life. And the, the world says, hey, if you want full joy, buy this thing that I'm trying to sell you. And Jesus just flips that on its head and says, no, lay down your life. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Lay down your life. The gospel, one author says, is not just an illustration of an idea, but it's the story of actions, the actions of Jesus Christ in human history when he lived, died, and rose from the dead. It's a story of actions by which the human situation is irreversibly changed. And new creation begins. We... We know this, and we, we know of people who are living out this vocation in a way that's costly, but they're so full of joy. Our Ukrainian brother, Ivan Prokopchuk, that you've heard us talk about, who lived in a gulag for seven years because he wouldn't stop preaching Christ. Our friend Celestin, who bears on his back the brand marks of Jesus. When I, when I think about what it looks like to give all that we are for all that he is, I, I think about a group called the Cambridge Seven. The Cambridge Seven, one of these guys is named C.T. Studd. We've got a quote from C.T. Studd on the wall over our dinner table. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We just want to remind ourselves of that. All these guys were English nobility, some of them barons. They were all really wealthy. Why talk about C.T. Studd? You can see which one he is. He's the good looking one up there. Well, the Cambridge Seven, they played cricket at Cambridge University in England. And they're all pretty good, but C.T. Studd was the best. He was the Michael Jordan of cricket in his day. And before he even started playing cricket, his family had a big house in London and two manors outside the city. And fame and notoriety and success, anything he wanted was waiting for him. C.T. Studd and another one of these guys, their, their fathers met Christ and then they started making sure these young men were hearing about Christ. And so on the preaching of the gospel and the call for missions, the Cambridge Seven all left their cricket team, but they didn't just leave their cricket team they left everything. They left their wealth. They left their nobility. They left their notoriety. They left their rights. And they went to China and to Africa to take the gospel to the least reached peoples on the planet. C.T. Studd went with a an organization called China Inland Mission that became OMF. And we got uh, Dan and Lindy Bacon, who we support today, that are with OMF, and Ashley Butte, who's sharing the gospel with the people of Japan with OMF. That, that surrender continues today. Most of the guys went to Africa, and that's where CT Stud ended up 39 years later, dying. And here's what C.T. Studd said about giving all that we are for all that Jesus is. He says, Christ wants not nibblers of the possible. 
but grabbers of the impossible by faith in the omnipotence and fidelity and wisdom of the almighty Savior. It's that I treasure him so much that Jesus is more valuable than I can imagine and more important than I can understand. So I'll give all that I am for all that he is. I lay myself down. But what about my plans, Chase? One of my dearest friends in the world, I talk to him about once a year, is a guy named Billy Puckett. He's a professor in Georgia, and Billy and I just spent a lot of time together in college. He was my best man, and I was his. And our last year in college, this summer, we would uh, do all kinds of things together, and we would just be walking, and Billy would just say this thing that he still says to this day, oh, what a wonderful day it will be when all of my thoughts aren't focused on me. That just plays over in my head sometimes. Oh, what a wonderful day it will be when all of my thoughts aren't focused on me. Listen, if you, if you find a struggle to surrender because you think a lot about yourself, because to surrender to Jesus, we have to think way less about ourselves and time-wise. We just don't spend much time thinking of our own dreams and agenda. There's a great little book. It takes about less than an hour to read. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. There are five copies at the curved counter free for the taking today. Oh, what a wonderful day it will be when all of my thoughts aren't focused on me. I just wonder, when we think about our vocation, do we have personal priorities and dreams for the year that we just need to lay aside? Might God call you to the nations? Might this be the year where you lay down your phone and pick up your Bible a whole lot more? Might this be the year where you as a family prioritize, hey, we are gonna worship together this year. This is the year we're gonna get into community so that we can grow in Christ. This is a year we're gonna serve in the launch pad or serve in overflow or, or serve with one of our partners, I was talking to a guy in a 930 service, a friend of mine who just retired after a long service, both in the army and then a civilian servant of the US military, just retired, and I said, what are you doing? He said, man, I've got this next thing that I'm stepping more into that's a great ministry opportunity here at TBC. He wants to spend his retirement surrendered to Jesus Christ so that his joy might be full. How do you make a plan to give this year? What's your plan this year, Jesus, with people? Asked another way, is your mind about work given over to Jesus Christ? Is your mind about your marriage or singleness given over to Jesus Christ? Is your money given to God and His purposes in 2024? You've got to consider the cost. You've got to consider the cost. My, my son-in-law, Dan, or was telling me over the Christmas break when he and Maddie were in, and their, their church just north of Boston, Danner spends time with guys, young men in the youth group, helping them to grow and know in Christ, sometimes reading the scripture with them. And he said, I was just contacting all my guys saying, let's read through the New Testament this year. Let's read through the New Testament this year. And he said, one of the guys just texted back immediately. I'm, I don't know if I'm up for that. I'm not sure I'm willing to give the time. Okay, well, we know where you are, right? So Danner really politely said, how about we just read through the book of John? That'll take way less time than the whole New Testament. There's, there's room to grow, but the call is to surrender. And so there's a new understanding of relationships, there's a new understanding of vocation, and then there's a new understanding 
of cost. See, if you look in your Bible or in your app, if you look right above Luke 14, 25, you look just right above Luke 14, 25, you're gonna probably see something like these four words. It's gonna say the cost of discipleship. And I, I'm gonna tell you, I think that's a, that's a fine title, but I think it might ought to say the cost of non-discipleship. Because see, there is a cost to following Jesus, but there's also a cost to not following Jesus. We're going to talk about the cost of following Jesus, but then there's also this cost. What shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Well, following Jesus costs you everything. Yeah, not following Jesus costs you everything. Or there's that story that Jesus tells about these two brothers that are arguing with him, and he says, hey, let me tell you about this guy who had all the money you want, guys. So much so, he needed to build some bigger barns, and God looked at him and said, you fool, this night, your life is required of you. So Jesus gives a couple of scenarios. He says, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Whether he has enough to complete it, otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. I'll tell you, one of the things that used to drive me crazy when I was a missions pastor is Americans will go over on a short-term trip to Africa or Asia. They'll see something that they think a ministry ought to have, and they'll go, hey, I'm going to give X amount of money for this building. I want you guys to build this building. Right? You got... You got people who don't have running water in their houses. Hey, I'm going to give you guys money to build this building. And and here's what they do. They start building the building, but they don't count the cost. And there are half-built buildings that just litter Africa. They didn't count the cost. So we can hear it plain as day, but I think when Jesus is saying this to people in the first century, they're thinking about a particular tower. Consider the cost. Trying to build this on your own. And I think they're thinking about the Tower of Babel where these people said, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to be great. We are the most powerful. We'll be the most wise. We'll be the greatest ever. And God takes their tower and brings it down and confuses their language. Consider the cost of trying to be in charge of your own life. And then all the more poignantly, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is with 10,000 troops to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 troops? Let's see, those are not good odds. 10,000 is 20,000. You don't have to be Wes Rogers to know that's bad math, right? And if not, if you can't do it while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And see, what they're not aware of is what Jesus is about to say next. And here's what he's saying. You're the king with 10,000 and I'm the king with 20,000. And here are the terms of peace. Verse 33. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And Jesus, I would like to offer you 70% of me this year. No, I'm not going to do it. We live in a world of percentages. I heard a comedian, sometimes they're just so sharp, 
and get to the point of things. And I was listening to this guy the other day and he said he walked past a lady's clothing store and it said 92% of our items are ethically sourced. What that means is 92% of those things, they pay the people a good wage and they make sure they're taken care of and all is well. And he just said, that's really not a good number. I mean, 92% is great, but you don't want to hear how we treat that 8%, right? That skirt is so cute. See, Jesus says, it's all that you are for all that I am. You bring me your sin, I'll bring you my righteousness. You lay down your life and I'll give you eternal life. Might cost you your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters. I'll give you new ones called the church. Might cost you your life. You be with me forever in ever increasing joy. You might hear that and go, I man, I hear you, but I don't even know. Do you know what my life is like, Chase? Do you know what I've walked through? Do you know what I've been through? Do you know the things that God has allowed me to experience or some people even say cause me to experience? I don't, I, don't know if I, I don't know if I can do that. And those are the sorts of things that we wrestle with and we ought to wrestle with. Job wrestled with those and God didn't give him the answer he was looking for. And I'll tell you, I... I look at suffering in the world. I look at pain, disease, war. I do not know why the Lord allows that. But let me tell you that what I do know about him and what is clear about him is enough for me to trust him with all these things I don't understand. Why? Surrender, because he's not just the one who calls us to surrender. He is our example of surrender. Philippians 2, chapter 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which is also in Christ Jesus. So you're you're called to surrender. You're called to have this mind because he had this mind. He had the mind we're called to have. Verse 6, he was in the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The pre-incarnate Christ in heaven in perfect eternity past fellowship with the Father and the Spirit loving one another, not needing a thing. He laid aside his privileges. And he came as a baby and he lived tempted just like you and I are. But not just like you and I are without sin. And he took punishment that belonged to us to conquer sin and death and to give life to all who trust in him. He laid down his rights. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. How obedient? Obedient to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because he surrendered, did you hear that? You're invited to today, but it's coming. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Surrender in our lives is coming. It's just a matter of when and how. Today, there's this opportunity of glad surrender. Jesus, I give all that I am for all that you are. Are you willing to trust him with what you do not know based on the things that are plain and clear that this is the God who died in our place? He was nailed to a Roman cross in our place. He took the full bore wrath of God on himself in our place. And he has shown his love to us, rising from the dead and giving life to all who trust. Can you surrender? And how might you do that? How might you surrender your time so that you can grow more and more and more in him? How might you surrender your talent so that you can serve? Serve his church, serve his people, serve our partners, serve the nations. And how might you surrender your treasure so that the gospel continues to go forward in the central Texas and all the world? Well, those are kind of big questions. So what I'd like to ask you to do is not go, oh yeah, I got an answer for that right now. But, but tomorrow, and then you'll be invited the next two Mondays as well. Tomorrow, would you consider a fast from sunrise to sunset? To fast and ask, how can I surrender my time this year? Would you guide me, Lord Jesus? How can I surrender my talent? How can I surrender my treasure? I'm gonna lay aside food to trust in you and ask you. All that we are for all that he is. See, C.S. Lewis said, give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to the death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day. And the death of your whole body in the end, submit with every fiber of your being and you'll find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever raise from the dead. If you look out for yourself, you'll in the long run find hatred and loneliness and despair and rage and ruin and decay. But if you look for Christ, you'll find him and with everything else thrown in. And why surrender? Because Jesus, by his life and death and resurrection, has shown us this, that Jesus is more valuable than we can imagine. And he's more important than we can understand. God, would you stir our hearts with the beauty of King Jesus and his great love for us so that we might renounce all that we have, so that we might lay aside 
all these things that won't last so that, that our life might be marked by the banner of a white flag that is surrendered to a beautiful and glorious king. And may our joy be filled, be full as we do, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.